Hello everyone, my name is Haley Elizabeth and if you don't know who I am, this is my true crime podcast where once a week I sit down and I talk about all things true crime, ranging from murders, disappearances, cults, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all things true crime. So if you're interested in any of that, you can head over to the YouTube channel every Wednesday for the visual version or head over to Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts every Tuesday for the audio version. Now today's case is going to be the case of Sean Vincent Gillies. Now there is a lot to get through so we're just gonna hop right into it. Sean Gillies was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana on June 24th, 1962 to his dad Norman and his mom Yvonne. When Sean was a baby, his father Norman had left him and his mom, so they ended up moving in with his mom's parents. Sean's father Norman was said to be very abusive, and there was even one occasion where Yvonne said that he had pointed a gun at newborn Sean's head over an argument that the couple was having. Norman was also a heavy substance abuser, specifically with alcohol, and suffered a lot of mental health issues. He would also have times where he quote-unquote left reality and would experience psychotic breaks. Yvonne nonetheless left her relationship and tried to do her best and raise Sean on her own. She had a full-time job at a TV station and provided for Sean the best that she could by giving him everything he needed to be successful in life. But Sean was known at school for being quite the bully. He got a kick out of seeing people cry and found it funny when people got mad at him for the things that he did wrong. Because of this behavior, he was also attracting friends that were just like him and liked to stir up trouble. So around 12 or 13 years old is when Sean started to become interested in what it would be like to kill someone. At 12 years old is when Sean even attempted at killing one of his female cousins just because he wanted to feel her breasts. When Sean lived with his grandparents and his mother, they lived across the street from a funeral home and that was actually the same funeral funeral home that his grandmother passed away in. And so as a child, he grew up a lot around death. And through that, he learned to not really mind death or view death as such a big deal as much as it was to other people. And so because of his dark humor, him and his cousin would sometimes sneak into the funeral home across the street and sleep in the coffins or play hide and seek in graveyards. And although he got up to a lot as a kid, he was never really caught for any of his actions or had run-ins with the law. He wouldn't even get in trouble very often with his parents or at school because he always knew how to get away with everything that he did. And then in 1980, right before Sean's 18th birthday, he actually had his first run-in with the police. It wasn't anything crazy. It was a simple traffic violation, but it unfortunately wouldn't be the last. After high school, Sean really had no plans of going to college. So instead, he got a job at 7-Eleven before quitting only after a couple months. After this, he continued to hop around from job to job, working in retail, gas stations, but Sean, as an adult, didn't really have many friends, which wasn't very different to him in high school. Most people described him as odd, and when you actually got to know him, he made very uncomfortable, dark jokes. And don't get me wrong, I love dark humor, but only when it is done well. And Sean would literally never think before opening up his mouth, he would just blurt out the most graphic and concerning things that wasn't even really funny and it would just end up making people very uncomfortable. And so because of that, Sean spent most of his free time alone in his bedroom on his computer. Now this was during the 90s. So the 90s internet world was so, so different than what it is now. There was no such thing as filters or you can only access this website if you have this browser. Everything was just a free for all. I mean, in the 90s, there was actually this website called Cam 
Cannibal Cafe, where you would literally just go to cannibalcafe.com and on this public browser, there were actual cannibalists just talking about their crimes openly, talking about what they did, how they haven't gotten caught. There were also people who were selling cannibalist cookbooks for people who wanted to perform cannibalism. And there was even a whole forum of people asking other people if they would be willing to die for them so that they could eat them. And that was just available to literally anybody that knew the name of the website. And so since there were things like this so easily accessible on the internet, that's when Sean, the more that he spent online, he quickly fell down uncensored rabbit holes pretty quickly. He then started to discover blood porn. And that is actually what piqued his interest the most and got him most excited was the sight of blood. He also started to gain an interest in quote-unquote Walter Mitty, aka The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which if you guys don't know is originally a book and it was later made into a movie in 2013 starring Kristen Wiig and Ben Stiller, but it's basically about a man who daydreams 24-7 and he daydreams himself of being a successful surgeon and an army commander and all these crazy situations, but in reality he's just plain average and lives a normal life with his wife and kids. Sean would later go on to say that this is how he lived most of his life. On the outside, he was living a very average, normal life, but on the inside, he would have daydreams of killing someone without actually doing it. That was until 1994 when Sean would meet a woman by the name of Terry Lemoyne. Him and Terry immediately hit it off, and at this point, Sean was in his early 30s and still living at home, and he spent most of his free time on the computer researching about murder and gore, and his mom was always pressing him to get a girlfriend, get married, and get a job so he can move out. And so when Sean met Terry, it was perfect timing for him, and so the two of them hit it off and began dating shortly after. And at first, this relationship wasn't actually going to pursue, because on their first date, apparently the two of them had gotten into a heated argument that led Terry to slap Sean right across the face, and to this, Sean started crying to, I'm assuming, make her feel bad about it. And so Terry, in return, started to actually feel bad and she apologized and said that she would never hit him again and if she could just give him a second chance, a second date to redeem herself. And after this, the couple began going on more and more dates that led to them shortly getting a house together. Terry worked nights and so while Terry was away at work, that's when Sean would take advantage and drive around town looking for sex workers as well as stalking his quote-unquote favorite women. At this point, Sean was just seeing women from a distance, observing with curiosity, but never actually approaching them. That was until March 21st of 1994. At this point, Sean was nervous to talk to women because he didn't know how they were going to react or if they might tell their friends or be strong enough to get away from him. And so that's when he chose his first victim to be someone very vulnerable and unable to defend themselves. And that's when he would claim his first victim, 81-year-old Anne Bryan. Anne was simply just a stranger walking along a pretty empty road in front of her nursing home, and that's when Sean had approached her and tried touching her. Obviously, when he tried touching her, Anne started to scream because a random man is just touching her, and when Anne started screaming and tried to get away, that's when Sean would pull out a knife and cut her throat. He then proceeded to stab Anne 50 times before leaving her body 
body there on the sidewalk where she was discovered the following morning by retirement home staff. After he got away with this crime, that's when Terry stopped working nights at her job, meaning Sean couldn't go out and cruise anymore. But weirdly, instead of trying to find a loophole or a way around it, he ended up not killing anyone for another five years, although the temptation was always there. And after his five-year hiatus, that's when Sean would go on his killing spree and brutally murder seven more women in the sickest ways I personally have ever heard. January 4th, 1999, at this point, Sean was 37 years old. He was cruising the streets at night before he came across 29-year-old Catherine Ann Hall. Catherine was a sex worker that Sean had lured with the promise of oral sex. When she got in the car, they drove to a secluded area where he then tried killing her by strangling her with a zip tie. Catherine was able to escape and in doing so, Sean began to stab her to death before undressing her and mutilating her body. He then cut off both of her eyelids and put it in his back pocket as a trophy. It was shown at her autopsy that she was stabbed 16 times while she was alive, then another 20 once she was dead. I'm assuming he stabbed her so much when she was dead as if to relive the experience because it had all gone by so fast. Sean then took Catherine's body and planted her near a construction site right next to a sign that read, quote, dead end. So again, a really, really dark sense of humor. But Sean was so egotistical at this point because he had gotten away with one murder that he didn't even try to cover up and he just left all the evidence behind. And when Catherine was found, his DNA was all over the crime scene. They even found a pubic hair inside of Catherine's mouth and his DNA was found underneath her fingernails. But once again, this was during the 90s and the systems back then were nothing like how they are now. Back then, when you received a DNA sample, it wasn't easy as just looking it up in the system. The only way they would catch you is if the person was already in jail or has been in jail before so that their DNA would have been in the system. But if you have never been arrested and you weren't in prison, they literally just could not find you, which is terrifying. Especially if you didn't even live in the town that the murder was committed in. And then on May 30th, 1999, Sean ended up getting away with Catherine's murder for the time being and decided to continue his killing spree. On one of his afternoon drives, that's when Sean had seen 52-year-old Hardy Schmidt walking in South Baton Rouge. Sean, over the next three weeks, would continue to stalk Hardy and also learn her routine and the route that she took every single morning. And then after three weeks, one morning at 5.30 a.m., that's when Sean decided to strike. Sean pulled up next to Hardy jogging and just straight up walked up to her and punched her point blank in the face. This led to her falling over and Hardy started screaming, quote, my back, to which Sean had yelled back, quote, lady, your back is the least of your problems now. And then after this, he pulled out a zip tie and proceeded to strangle Hardy to death. After this, he took her body and threw her in the trunk of his car. He actually had her in the trunk of his car for two days until he dumped her body in an area called Bayou located off of a highway 61 at St. James Parish. Her body was later found by a person walking their dog and was identified as Hardy. But once again, with his last victim, he adds a little bit of humor by dumping off her body on Parish Street. Shortly thereafter, November 12th of 1999, Sean was driving once again looking for sex workers at night because on this night, Terry was actually 
working late. And that's when Sean would find 36-year-old Joyce Williams in Scotlandville. He did the same thing to Joyce as he did to Catherine. He lured her into the car, drove to a secluded area, and strangled her with a zip tie. He then brought Joyce's body to his home that he shared with Terry, where he would then mutilate and perform cannibalism on her body. He would then put her body back in his trunk and dump her in the middle of the woods where her body wouldn't be found until the following year in January of 2000. And in that same month of January of 2000, when Joyce's body was found, that's when Sean struck again. This time on 52-year-old Lillian Robinson, who was also strangled with a zip tie and Sean actually engaged necrophilia on her. At the time, although Sean had committed so many murders, police never connected these crimes to be the same killer. Because the women that he was targeting, some women were sex workers while others were not. They were all found in random places and from different towns. All of them did have male DNA found on the crime scene, but they couldn't specifically say whose it was. And then in October of 2000, Sean's sixth victim was 38-year-old Marilyn Neville. She passed away through strangulation and she was also beat to death. He drove off to a random area and tried to strangle Marilyn with a zip tie, but Marilyn was actually able to break free and she got out the car and started running towards an open road. Sean would go on to say that she was the only victim he had to actually be physical with because she was starting to run towards the road while a car was coming up that would eventually see her. He immediately picked up a metal rod off of the floor and ran up behind her and hit her in the head. This led her to fall down on the ground to which Sean began to beat her to death before strangling her and then bringing her back to the car. Once she was in the car, that's when Sean would perform necrophilia on her, but also sliced, cut, and gagged her body. Marilyn's body was later dumped and then found on Halloween night. And what's so sad about all of this is that no one really knew who Marilyn was. She had no close family or friends, and so they ended up not even knowing that she was missing or dead until Sean's confession. So at this point, you're probably thinking that although the police don't see a connection, there really is a connection because all of these bodies had been strangled with zip ties. And most of these bodies also had necrophilia performed onto them, which is a link. Well, there was actually another murderer in the town of Baton Rouge that was later given the name the Baton Rouge Killer named Derek Todd Lee. Derek was actually found guilty of the murder of seven women who were mostly sex workers and was arrested and blamed for some of Sean's murders. It was at this time when Sean knew that there was another serial killer in the town and became obsessed with Derek. He wondered how they could have been friends and even murder together and talked about murder and he also fantasized on what if Todd was killing a woman at the same time that he was also killing a woman. When Sean's computer was later found by police, they found a folder that was titled, quote, DTL, which stood for Derek Todd Lee, and it was a folder all about Derek, his crimes, and everything about his life. And on October 9th of 2003, after the arrest of Todd, Sean became quite nervous in returning of murdering women because if they linked any of Sean's murder and blamed it on Todd, if Todd were to be in jail and they had another murder similar to the ones that they had convicted him of, they would assume that the killer is still out there and tried to look for Sean. And so that's when Sean decided to take a two-year hiatus before eventually killing 45-year-old Johnny May Williams. But unlike his other victims, 
victims. As I said, these were either random women that he found on the street or sex workers. He actually knew Johnny personally. Johnny Mae Williams was a 45-year-old female and Sean had actually been friends with her for 10 years. The two of them were really close and did many things together. They went on trips together, they went to lunch together, shopping, and Johnny genuinely viewed Sean as her close, genuine friend. And although he was a little bit odd, she didn't mind and she still cared for him. So when one day Sean had asked Johnny if he could pick her up and they would hang out for the day, it wasn't anything unusual. That was until during the drive, Sean begins to drive them out to a rural location before stopping the car and then strangling Johnny with a zip tie. After he strangled her, he then stabbed her multiple times before cutting off both of her hands, then performing necrophilia on himself with the hands. He later then dumped her body in the woods where she was later found. At this time, Sean started to struggle a lot with his mental health where he genuinely believed that he was God. He even started to give his weapon of choice the name, quote, the objectifier. And he gave it that name because it was his weapon that would turn women from a woman to an object that he could just do whatever he wanted to do with. On February 26, 2004, that's when Sean would claim his eighth victim, who was 43-year-old Donna Benet Johnston, who one night was walking drunk and alone. Sean then picked Donna up and then drove her to a secluded area where he began to strangle her. Now, there's some sources that say that she was strangled with a nylon tie wrap, while there's others that say that she was strangled with an electrical cord, but nonetheless, she was strangled to death, and then afterwards, Sean proceeded to take out his camera and take 45 pictures of her body. He then cut both of Donna's breasts off, including her left nipple. He also carved a tattoo on her right thigh and then cut her left arm completely off at the elbow. Her body was later found the next day, February 27th of 2004, in a drainage canal near Ben-Hur Road, south of Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. And a really messed up and dark and twisted detail about this is that after Sean had confessed to the murder of Donna, I guess he knew that the information of Donna was extremely valuable because only him and the police know what actually happened to Donna. And so while awaiting trial, being extremely sadistic like he was, he ended up sending a letter to Donna's best friend, Tammy, that described in detail the murder of Donna. In the letter to Tammy, he wrote, quote, She was so drunk, it only took about a minute and a half to succumb to unconsciousness and then death. Honestly, her last words were, I can't breathe. I still puzzle over the postpartum dismemberment and cutting. There must have been something deep in my subconscious that really needed that kind of macrobe action. And Tammy, who actually passed away the following year in 2005 due to AIDS, handed these letters off to prosecutors and these letters would be shown at Sean's trial. And then on March 3rd of 2004, the police slowly started to come down on Sean and looked into his connections with specifically the murder of Donna. And this 
this murder of Donna actually connected him to the crime of two other murders as well. And then in April of 2004, the police went to the scene of where Donna was found and actually found tire track marks that belonged to a white Chevy Cavalier. Now, there were a lot of people in the town that owned Chevy Cavaliers, but the police were determined to find Donna's killer. So they investigated the specific type of tire and narrowed it down to a tire that was released only in a certain three-year period. So they made a list of everyone in Baton Rouge who owned a Chevy Cavalier and the design of tires and knocked on every single one of those doors and asked questions. And Sean Vincent Gillies was number 26 on that list. The police went to Sean's door and asked him questions and the whole time he remained nonchalant until police asked him if he could go down to the station so that he could supply his DNA for the police. And Sean was very fine with it. He said, of course, yeah, let's go. I'll give you whatever you want. And so when he was taken to the station and his DNA was tested, his DNA was found at not just the crime scene of Donna's, but as soon as they looked up his DNA, it was like his DNA became plastered all over the town for seven other murders and even nearby towns as well. After his DNA was positive at eight different crime scenes, that's when Sean was arrested the following day in his home that he shared with Terry. And the entire time, Terry was apologizing to the police during his arrest. Now, Terry would later go on to tell police that she knew nothing about what he had done. And she says that at times she had an idea that maybe he was accessing things online that he shouldn't have. And at first when he was getting arrested, that's exactly what Terry thought he was getting arrested for. But as far as the brutal murders that he committed, she had no clue about. While Sean was taken into custody, police obtained a search warrant to search Sean's home. And that's when they would find horrific evidence of all of these murders. They found all 45 pictures of Donna's body in all different stages of mutilation and dismemberment. They also found pictures of other murdered women. And as they looked through his computer, they found that he was engaging in all sorts of snuff films. They also found folders of all of his crimes labeled by names of victims. They also found out that he had downloaded snuff films and even had a folder on his computer called, quote, best of snuff, beheadings and hangings. And there was another folder that was called, quote, Russian necrophilia. They also found the folder titled DTL where his obsession with Derek Todd Lee had come about and within the folder there was a diary entry where Sean was talking about Todd and his fear of being outdone by Todd because Todd when he was arrested was given the name the Baton Rouge Killer and that's exactly what Sean wanted to be called one day when he got caught and so he even contemplated the fact that maybe he could get the name the other Baton Rouge killer. When police told Sean what they had known, that is when Sean had confessed completely. And when Sean started talking, he did not stop. He was an open book and discussed all of his crimes in great detail. And when you watch his interrogation, it weirdly feels like as if he's talking on a talk show. He occasionally cracks witty jokes and laughs to himself. He's also treating the investigators as if they're his best friends and they're just, you know, cracking a couple beers and telling stories. Like at one point in the interrogation when he's talking about Donna's murder, he says that he cut off a piece of her skin and tasted a bit of the human fat and laughs and says, quote, surprisingly, human fat tastes horrible. And then he laughs again and he says, 
just horrible. I don't know how people do it. And at another time in the investigation, he was asked if he kept trophies at all in order to remember his victims. And all he said was, only once, but no, nothing like that. It was pretty much slash slash dump and forget. So it kind of became apparent to the police at this point that there was nothing personal about these murders. It was basically for temporary satisfaction. He didn't want to remember any of it because he knew that he could easily do it again to relive it and also not be caught on top of that because he had gotten away with it eight previous times. And then on July 21st of 2008, Sean's trial began and before his trial, he actually sent a letter off to his friend talking about Donna's murder where he expressed a little bit of remorse for it. In the letter, he said, quote, I don't know what the hell was wrong with me. I was in a real bad place. I was pure evil that night. No love, no compassion, no faith, no mercy, no hope. Now, I'm not sure if this was him being genuine with this because this was also shown by his defense team at court as if to say, look, he's changing. He just needs help. He doesn't really mean anything he does. But I'm assuming that maybe Sean just did that because the defense team knew that they were going to show the letters that he sent to Tammy. And obviously those letters that he sent to Tammy were disgusting and extremely incriminating. And so they thought that by showing another letter, it would hold hopefully overshadow the letters that they just shown. But all in all, at first, Sean was only charged with the murder of Catherine Hall, Johnny Williams, and Donna Johnston. But on July 31st, 10 days later, he was found guilty of all seven of the eight murders, excluding 52-year-old Lillian Robinson. And even to this day, Lillian's case is still being investigated, even though it's kind of obvious that Sean was the one that committed it. At first, Sean tried to plead not guilty and file motions to suppress his confession, as well as the validity of his DNA. But both of these motions were denied, and Sean was given two life sentences for the murder of his seven victims. And even to this day, Sean Vinson is currently 61 years old, still living out his life sentence at Louisiana State Penitentiary. As far as the aftermath of everything, Terry would go on to say that through the years they were together, she had no clue of the extent to what Sean was doing. At times, of course, he would be sneaky about it where he was going online and not showing her what he was doing, or she would catch him on late night drives and have odd behavior about his whereabouts, but she just assumed the entire time that he was having an affair. She even recalls one time when she got in the car with him and she says that she had smelled a foul smell, but he had just told Terry that he hit an animal on the way home, but the entire time, the body of 52-year-old Hardy Schmidt was still in the trunk. Terry goes on to say that at the time he was arrested, she was completely blindsided by everything that he had done and couldn't believe it. She never would have guessed the horrible things that he had done because as I said, on their first date, Terry had slapped him right across the face and right after she slapped him, he started crying and so Terry would have never ever guessed that Sean could do something this violent against women. And a lot of people also ponder as to why Sean never 
never killed Terry because he had killed Johnny Williams. They had been best friends for the past 10 years. So what was so different about Terry? A lot of people hypothesize that on Terry and his first date, she indeed did slap him across the face. And this was Terry's way of sticking up for herself against Sean. He liked the fact that she stood up for herself and that she was bold and that she wouldn't. And that was something that he genuinely liked about her. And so as they started dating, that was something that he admired about her. And so that is a theory as to why a lot of people think Sean had just let her live. And in the years following Sean's trial, Terry had actually continued living in the home that her and Sean had lived in for years after he was arrested. But after a couple years of living there, she decided to move to Alabama after her house was continuously being vandalized, especially on Halloween, and receiving letters at her door, as well as the word liar being spray painted on her home. And yeah, that is the end of today's case. If you guys found this case interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you're on YouTube or if you're on Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts, make sure to rate it five stars because that really helps me out a lot. And yeah, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Make sure to be safe out there. Go outside today. It's finally getting a little bit warmer, so make sure to soak in as much sun as you can. And as always, I love you, I love you, I love you, and I will see you guys next week.